Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. And thank you so much for listening. We've now recorded over 25 episodes with some of the best guitarists in the world, and we don't plan on slowing down. We're so stoked that you're enjoying the topics we are covering. Please share us with your friends and give us a tag. You can find me on Instagram at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A.R. Levy. And that's at A.R. Levy U-R-M Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. If you want to give us a review, then we especially love iTunes reviews. We will never charge you for this podcast. All we ask is that you give us a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is my friend, Matt Halpern, drummer of Periphery, one of the founders behind Get Good Drums, just an amazing human being. And I know we normally talk to guitar players here, but I thought it would be interesting to have a drummer who plays with a lot of the guitar players we've had on here. I think it would be great for those of you who want to know what it is a drummer is looking for, how a drummer thinks, or or just to get a little bit of perspective outside of guitar players. Well, that's why Matt is coming on, and I urge you all to pay attention to what he has to say. I'll stop talking, introduce you, Matt Halpern. Matt Halpern, welcome to the Riff Hard podcast this time. Hell yeah. It's good to be back. Well, it's good to be here. First time, it's good to be back with you, and it's good to see you, John. It's been a long time. It's been like uh, almost a year and a half since uh, our South America run, so it's been it a bit, has. man. It but I'm glad, I'm glad I actually got to see you like for a length of time then instead of just like what it usually is, which is really quick. So It's normally just like 20 minutes before you go on stage. Pretty much, yeah. We had some good times, man. I, like, that tour was grueling as fuck, but it was, it was fun. It was really fun. Up until we got to Chile... It was amazing. And then we got to Argentina and got in this bus that I thought we were going to die in, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Was that the venue in the basement, like all the way down? That was, yeah, that was the one in Santiago. That was a really fun show, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was a really fun show. But that was, I remember, I don't know, I remember the first two shows were sick. That that hotel in Colombia yeah. was like incredible. Like the best, like nicest hotel I've probably ever stayed at. And then, yeah, then it went to like grueling hard <laughs> flights and travel and yeah it was scary for a bit are the argentinian tour buses at all like the mexican tour buses it was like a, a just a big van right like wasn't like a sprinter kind of thing or, or which one so we uh when we did that after that chili show that we did with you we went to argentina and did a bunch of shows separately okay right we went into an actual tour bus not a van but this tour bus looked like it had been in five absolute touring crashes <laughs> and okay. it had been on fire yes. the answer is yes then, <laughs> yeah the mexican tour bus i was in was like a passenger bus from the 50s that instead of having bunks it had these concentration camp style <laughs> wooden <laughs> wooden uh, beds it i mean <laughs> it, it definitely looked like Auschwitz. Oh, man. Yeah, it was kind of That fun. sounds like your first van. 
Scary, scary Gary. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. yeah, we uh, yeah, that band, uh, that van. I mean, it got us around everywhere. It was rickety as shit towards the end too. And then I don't know if you know the story, John, but like once we stopped touring in it, it stayed at Justin's house, Justin Gosnell's yep. house, when Jake was living there for a bit, and it just sat outside for like a year. And when Jake finally went in there, there was like animals living in it and it was it was a proper like rat's nest. So I think we sold it for like maybe a thousand bucks, maybe <laughs> if that. And whoever took it is just, you know, in for a treat. But yeah. <laughs> Have you did you ever see the uh the documentary that we did we were part of for Summer Slaughter when it was it was periphery, Veiled Maya, the Faceless, BT Bam. I, th- I can't remember if Animals was on that tour, but... That was like 2009, right? It was 2000... That was 2010, I think. 2010 or 2011. And that was the tour where the Faceless and I think Vale were sharing a bus. Okay. Wes Hauk was on the bus too. And the thing was like so shot. And like the whole the whole tour documentary is just about how shot the bus was and how rickety it was. There's no air conditioning. There's no heat. You fly in the air when you hit a bump, <laughs> you know. So I don't think it's exclusive to fucking, uh, you know, the southern the southern countries. I think we get plenty of shitty fucking buses here in the states too. Oh yeah, absolutely. The uh, the Gus G episode when he came on, uh, I reminded him that the time that I met him, he says he doesn't remember, but the time that I met him was when a, our mutual A and R guy from Century Media flew to Atlanta when Firewind was coming to Atlanta and he just called me one morning and said, uh, Gus G is going to be in a parking lot in the same RV that ripped you guys off. Do you want to meet me in this parking lot and get you your money back? It's like, okay. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I've had some very hairy experiences over here too. I just think touring in general shot. It's scary, man. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's a, it's a necessary thing. And obviously there's a million great things about it, but the, 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 the act of putting your lives in the hands of a driver in a, a big moving machine <laughs> with wheels <laughs> is pretty fucking scary. And like, you, you kind of, you have to like develop this sort of like a uh, disassociative uh, mentality when you go to sleep at night. It's like, you know, sleep is supposed to be peaceful and calm. Yet if you really think about what you're doing, you're, you're fucking barreling down a highway in a metal death trap, hoping that the guy driving you got enough sleep during the day to get to where you need to go safely. It's pretty scary, isn't it? And that if he does get tired, he won't get prideful about it. Right. And, you know, that's that's honestly why, like, if we can, we try to use the same drivers for multiple tours because, like, you know, if you, if you get lucky enough to have a great driver that gets you places safely and you kind of know their routine, it's it's super it's super beneficial to try to get them on board for any tour. Like when we go to Europe, we pretty much will only work with this our driver there named Mira. She's amazing. She's our tour mom. Great. And she's an amazing driver. She just knows the road so well. Super, super responsible. She's super cool. You know, she's like my my uh, my my mom away from home. So we always try to like build relationships, even with drivers like that, for multiple reasons. But you know, safety is obviously a big one. And if they care about you and you care about them, there's a lot more likelihood that they'll take it seriously and not get prideful. You know, 
I had a hard time with that dissociative thing towards the end. Uh, that was one of the reasons I wanted out was I was able to do the dissociative thing for a while, but towards the end, I just couldn't, I just couldn't get over the fact that I'm sleeping unsecured in a moving vehicle. Uh, and I didn't feel like I just, I couldn't do it anymore. Huh. Well, right. And you can't ever say that it's just always 100% fine because I mean, there's so many incidences that have happened that we can point to with people we know. And yeah, you know, it's, it's just, it's crazy. Do you remember the one that, um, who was it? Baroness was in Bath. Oh yeah. Yeah. That one was bad. Near Nolly's house. Yeah. Going down that fucking hill, which I've walked down. I don't know how many times. Didn't they turn around a corner and it sort of flew off a bridge? Is that the one? I don't know the specifics of the accident, but I know that the, like that particular hill where they had the crash, it's like on that hill, If I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm thinking of, this, of the right one. There's row homes on the left side of the road going down. Okay. And then it's there's just nothing on the right. It's just trees and forest and you're up high. And it's essentially like a... Like, not a, I guess a half bridge. It's like a, it's like a roadway that's on stilts going downward from a very high point. Okay. And I think, yeah, they like rolled over the side or they went off the side and it's fucking brutal, man. It's so Just, scary. There's one thing that I always think about this is that there's one band that's still doing it. And it's kind of like the final destination of bands because they've been in so many accidents and it's decapitated. Decapitation. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's wild. Like, I think, I think I've counted four separate occasions um, that they've been in pretty severe crashes, one being a plane crash. Um, and yeah, it just, I mean, I mean, AI. And they've was, lost people. Like, literally, yeah. have, like, people have died yeah. with them. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, obviously the old singer as well is still in hospital now um, from it. But I mean, even, I mean, AR, you were saying about, you know, the bus is a death trap. I mean, in a way, I mean, if you're going to crash in an airplane, the likelihood you're going to survive is pretty nil, <laughs> you know? Um, so it's all kind of scary. Well, there's some people who I think feel no fear. I'm sure you guys know that type. And I think that they're the lucky ones because they're well-suited for this sort of thing. It just, the risk just doesn't affect them. But I think the rest of everybody has to either do the dissociative thing or they get into things like heavily medicating themselves with alcohol or drugs before the vehicle starts rolling just so that their nerves are not, uh, you know, don't get in the way of sleep. It's, uh, it's not necessarily the most, uh, I think, the most conducive to healthy people <laughs> as far as careers go. Yeah. What are you going to do, right? It's also not about the crashing stuff either. Like Matt, when you, uh, you dislocated your shoulder on a flight, didn't you? It was right before. Yeah. It was at the airport before we flew to the UK and it just got worse on the flight. And then by the time I got there to start the tour, I couldn't do it. I had to go to the hospital and they were like, yeah, you like, you shouldn't be playing drums or carrying anything for like four to eight weeks. So that was fun. What did you do? So we very quickly scrambled. We hired Mike Malian, yeah. who uh, yeah. at the time was playing with Monuments. I, he I'm still is. Sure. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, that's he's right. Back. Yeah, he's back. That's right. Fuck yeah. So he was, he was just happened to be free, but only had like a week or 10 days or something before he started a tour with you guys. So he filled in for like, I think it was like, like the first, like first five to seven shows ish. 
And then Boris Legal filled in for the rest. Um, and it was just a scramble. Dude, that, that was a cursed tour in some ways too. Like that happened to me. I flew home, those guys filled in. And then right after Mikey left the tour, it was like the first or second night. I think it was my, might've been the first night that Boris was on the bus and we were sharing a bus with BT Bam at the time. The bus caught fire. The engine <laughs> caught fire. Um, luckily Jesus. no one was hurt and everybody got out and everything was, was okay. And you know, I wasn't there. I wake up in the morning, I'm home nursing my shoulder and I wake up to the news that like there was a, a, a bus fire and it happened in the middle of the night and it was in, you know, I think it was in the UK. Um, but it was brutal. It was, it was just, it was, that was a rough one, but yeah, like shit like that happens. And like, what are you going to do? It's, it, you know, luckily we didn't cancel. Um, do you know, but, that's not the only bus fire that Boris has been in either. There was one a couple of years ago. <laughs> maybe, maybe he's, maybe, maybe, maybe he's the catalyst. <laughs> yeah. Have you, have you guys seen, uh, uh, do you watch the show? What we do in the shadows? No, I've heard of it. There's a, like, there's a theme throughout. It's a vampire uh, show, right? Yeah, there's a, yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a, a theme throughout the show of like this cursed hat that um, Laszlo owns, and then another vampire wants. But it's like it's a it's a hat with a curse, and it, it just leads to very bad things. So I wonder if Boris uh, he's got he's got the Boris has that hat somewhere. Yeah, or maybe he's been reading out the numbers four, eight, fifteen. <laughs> you know, the thing that I do think is positive about all that. Um, is that one thing that I got from touring um, and that I've noticed that people who tour uh, have is the ability to solve problems in real time that are uh, not existential. Well, maybe you might die in a wreck, but uh, not existential as in like solving problems in a battle, in war, but existential in terms of we can't continue unless this problem gets solved. And there are lots of problems that I think a lot of people in the real world might crumble under the pressure of. And I think that touring professionals have gotten accustomed to that kind of pressure. Like this job may not continue if this problem doesn't get solved right here and now, and you have no idea how you're going to solve it and you do anyways. Um, and it's always something different. I think that that's, that's a really good training ground, I think for, uh, for, at least for me, for getting into entrepreneurial pursuits. I'm sure for you too. Yeah. I mean, all of us have been through it. I mean, like even if things don't need to be done, like, you know, in an emergency style, like where you have to make decisions very quickly, which we've all encountered for sure, especially on tour, especially when you're in places that you're not like, that are not home. Like, I'm sure there were things we had to deal with that I don't even remember now in South America, like having to do with the shows and like little details of it that we all had to like make quick decisions on. And it just, it becomes, yeah, you, you do get better at it. But like, I mean, we've been through member changes, obviously like John, you guys have been through member changes and like making those decisions and like every little other step that comes before and after, you know, after that and how you adjust and how you adapt and how you communicate that to the people that, that care and follow the band. And it's just, there's so many little small decisions you have to learn to make quickly. And you're right, Al, that like being in a band and being in those situations definitely helps you get better at taking those, those risks and, and like, you know, weighing how heavy those decisions are quickly, you know, and like, 
you can also apply it to other really positive things. It's like, like you said, with entrepreneurial decisions, it's like you're probably, you get a lot better at being able to quickly decide whether something is for you or something is not for you. And if it is for you in an entrepreneurial pursuit, you tend to be able to decide quickly and then move fast. You know, like, and at least for me, like, that's always how it happens. Yeah. It's like you, I like, if there's an opportunity, I decide quick, I move fast for the most part. Every now and then you get a luxury of like kind of doing things on your own terms. Um, you know, like, which like with the stuff that we've been working on out, like with the, with the drum course, you know, like stuff, it's like, we're taking that. I'm, I want to take that a little slowly and figure it out and fit it in with everything else in life. But then there's other things. It's like, you kind of have to take advantage of the moment and what's happening and like run with it. And, uh, yeah, because if you don't, you know, very well, you've, you've experienced what it's like to not run with something and then poof, it's gone. Yeah. Never to happen again. I'm yeah. in a podcast. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, one of the things that, uh, I've tried really hard to do in my life and, it was definitely strengthened through the band is to learn how to spot opportunities. I came to the conclusion, like when I was 18 or 19, when I first started to meet guitar players that were way better than me. Like I was pretty good and I was like the best person in my high school and all that. But like once I started to meet people who were like, holy shit, you're, there's no way that even if I practice 12 hours a day that I'll be this good, it started to make me think, well, what, what do I have that they don't have? What can I do that, that they can't do? What is there? And I realized, well, first things first, I need to be able to spot opportunities faster than them. It doesn't matter if in a bedroom they're better than me. What matters is who gets who gets the opportunity. So I need to learn how to spot that really, really fast. And so I dedicated myself to to being able to identify that and the touring experience, the band experience just sped that up because of the nature of how quickly opportunities come. Sometimes they come in the matter of a, a text like, uh, like, Hey, uh, we just cleared up some tour support. You want to do Ozfest? text at three in the morning. Is it a, let me think about it or yes or no. Yeah. Th things like that. Yeah. Or yeah. Or like, Hey, our drummer just quit the band. Want to join <laughs> <laughs> is that what happened? That was the periphery call. Yeah, that, that was basically like what I, what happened with, uh, yeah, Travis left the band to join Sky's Airplane and then Misha hit me up like the next day or like the same day and was like, dude, we got these gigs. Can you do it? Yes or no? And it's like, uh, okay, sure, <laughs> let's go. And then, you know, now fucking 11, 12 years later, here I am. So. Has it only been 11 years? Maybe more. Uh, I joined like, the tail end of 2008, 2009. So yeah, 11, 12 years, maybe a little more. Yeah, like somewhere in that range. So it was really that quick? Sort of. I mean, in terms of like the periphery decision, yes, it was that quick. But, you know, I had built a relationship with Misha prior to that because he's the re he, he is the one who got me into Animals as Leaders or at least got me the opportunity to, to play with them for, you know, the six months that I was playing with them at the time in 2008 ish. Prior to that, I went to college with Alex Boyce, who was the guitar player periphery for a, a while. We became really good friends in school and then we kept in touch locally. And then, you know, it, it all was like through those relationships. But by the time that there was the opportunity to join periphery, it was kind of, it was just like the perfect timing because 
Javier and Tosin were both doing their own thing. Like there wasn't necessarily any, there wasn't anywhere near the trajectory or like the band that they are now at, at that time. Like Javi was producing really heavily, mainly like R&B, hip hop music in DC. Tosin was living, I want to say in Kentucky at the time, doing a bunch of like other artistic stuff. And we had the band, but you know, like the only thing that was upcoming months later was like New England Metal Fest. And that was all that was on the, on the roster. And like right at that time, Travis left periphery and um, Misha called me and was like, dude, you're the only one I know right now who knows how to play this style and knows some of the material and, you know, want to do it. I was like, yeah, count me in. And that's basically it. And some decisions are easy. It was such an easy decision to join the band. But man, to your point before, Al, like joining the band and the relationships and learning how to navigate every every relationship within that band, you know, or within this band was a massive challenge. And thankfully, we've gotten to a point now where it's super harmonious and like we really, really, really know how to work together. And it's 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 so much more than just like guys working together. I mean, we're true brothers. We truly respect and know how to communicate now. But that's like again, 10 years into it before we started doing that, you know, roughly. So for a long time, it was just like figuring out how to deal with each other. And I mean, Brown, you were there for, for a good bit of it. And uh-huh. like you got to see the, the different relationships to, to some degrees and like see yep. who was, who was getting along and who wasn't and what the turmoil was and who stayed and who left, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely got to experience that. And it happens in any band like, uh, or even just in, relationships in life it just happens but the the difference being that when you're in a band you're obviously in solitary confinement <laughs> on a plane and in a bus and uh on stage and it's like you're pretty much married to the people in your band because you see them so much and if you can't if you go, don't get along in those situations there's just no way that it's ever going to work and i really wish that people outside of the band really understood that because it always turns into this massive problem when someone leaves a band like you shouldn't have got rid of him he's great or you shouldn't have got rid of her she's great and it's like you have no fucking idea what we had to deal with (laughs) you know sometimes it's just a chemistry issue right like not everyone is meant to work together. Uh, Matt, I'm just curious, is the musical side of it just a given? Like, it's going to be awesome. You guys are going to make great stuff together. That part's a given. The challenge the challenge is the personalities. I don't think I can definitely say that the music stuff is a given because who the fuck knows? I mean, you know, just we write what we write. It turns out being cool, at least to me. But I mean, it's a given that you guys have chemistry. That's what I was just going to say. Yeah. Like, it, it's a given that we have chemistry, but whether what comes out is, uh, you know, chemical dog shit or like, <laughs> you know, chemical awesomeness, there's both for sure. And it's just, I mean, we have so many fucking ideas and like so many demos that it will never see the light of day because they're just dog shit or like, we, you know, we can't figure out how to work them out. But without going down that road, yeah, I mean... We were talking about this yesterday. We, we did a um, we did a BIM class, like an like an online BIM class, um, and we were talking about how like you know the idea of a super group is a great idea, but just because you have the best drummer, best guitarist, best bassist, best singer, best whatever, 
together doesn't mean that they're going to make great music together or have chemistry at all because there's so much that plays into it outside of your instrument. And I would argue that in Periphery, none of us are the fucking best musicians out there. We all have our weird quirks. We all have our, our weaknesses. We all have our strengths too. But like what makes it work is the fact that we we really have learned how to work together. We respect each other. We listen to each other. We've literally set, dude, like we've set up rules for communication in different settings. <laughs> I like remember we, one of those. We, and, and it's like interpersonal ones, meaning like me and Misha have rules with how we communicate with each other for positive and negative things. Same thing with me and Mark, same thing with me and Jake, same thing with me and Spencer and then everybody else. And then how we communicate as a band and, and what things need to be discussed as a group, what things need to be discussed or you know or don't need to be, be discussed as a group in full, what things we need to bring our manager in on, what things we can solve ourselves. Um, it's all so deliberate you know, to, to make it work. But I think if the chemistry is there, then it's worth it to do all that stuff. And maybe this is something that, that's worth noting is like if you are going to be in a band or start a business or have partners in any way, if the chemistry is there, that's awesome. But it's it, it, you can't just like rest on that. Like you want to keep the chemistry, so you need to figure out how you're going to communicate with each other in good and bad times and in stressful times and in happy times and et cetera. Yeah, and it's absolutely. like it's so worth having those conversations, as hard as they may be. Till death do us know? part. <laughs> in any relationship, there's going to come a point where you want to kill the person or they want to kill you. There's no way to do anything important without getting to that point. Somewhere along the line with the people you're close to, you can either let those situations define the relationship or you can use them as a, as a way to learn how to communicate better. Okay. So I fucked up how I approach this. How can I approach stuff like this better because I didn't approach it for no reason. There was a good reason to approach it or you approached me with something that was obviously important. Maybe the way you did it sucked, but uh, so why don't we work on the approach so that the idea itself doesn't get thrown out or the relationship doesn't get thrown out. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is it's, I find that a lot of things that people do that piss the other people off in the band, they, most of the time they don't realize that they're doing it. And that's really with anything like you can be self-aware, you can be the most self-aware person in the world, but to somebody else, there might be a quirk that you have or something that you're doing. And it could be very benign at first, but it, it, the more you do it over and over, it builds up and it becomes a real irritation. You know, you can't expect somebody else to just know what's pissing you off and, <laughs> and just miraculously change. So the hardest part, in my opinion, the part that takes the most courage and the most most like the most gumshoe is to like go to a person who's pissing you off and figure out how to let them know that, you know, and I can speak from my own experience. There's been times like I've talked about this before, but like there was there was some behaviors that I was exuding that was really rubbing the guys the wrong way. And everybody approached me in their different ways. But like Mark wrote me a nice email, you know, and, and I say a nice email because although it had a lot of hard things to read at first, it was, it was so important for me to know that because I had no fucking idea I was doing the things that were pissing him off. I had no clue. And how would I ever know unless he told me? 
And I'm grateful that he did because it made me realize, holy shit, yeah, like that would piss me off too if someone was doing that. Thank you. I'm going to change. And like I've had that with everybody in the band. And it's been both ways. Like Misha has approached me. I've approached him. Same with Spencer. Like we, we've all gone through this. But that's the hard part. Like if someone is pissing you off and you and you have a good enough or important enough relationship with them to where you want that relationship to last and overcome, then you need to be the bigger person and figure out how to very calmly approach who, the person who's pissing you off and explain it. And I always say like the best way to do that is to literally go to that person and be like, hey, listen, if there was something that was bothering me about about you that I needed to tell you about. What's the best way for me to tell you? Should I write you a letter? Should I write you an email? Should we sit down and talk? Just tell me the best way to approach you because I don't want this thing to, to keep affecting our relationship. You know, it's like, I feel like people dance around shit like that because it's, it's like too obvious or something. But it's like, if you, if there's a, a shared goal or like good chemistry or, or, or the importance of the relationship, like do that. Like I've done that with my wife. You know, it's like, it's so important. I think what it is, is that a lot of people are just scared of confrontation, me included in that, by the way. But most of the time people sort of um, get it into their heads or, you know, they get the butterflies of anxiety in their stomach at the approach to doing it. You know, like uh, when you overthink something and then it ends up being all right. You know what I mean? I think that's part of what it is because I definitely suffer with... Uh, to a degree, some form of communication just because I don't want to upset that person. When in reality, like, you know, everyone's human, everyone can take criticism. It's nothing to really get upset about. What's interesting about it is that not addressing it is going to actually make it worse, lead to a greater <laughs> confrontation. Yeah. People aren't thinking logically when they do the avoidance stuff. They're trying to avoid a confrontation, but creating a bigger one, letting that stuff still piss them off over time will lead to them lashing out in a much more dramatic way than just calmly approaching someone and asking, what's the best way for us to have this conversation? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what happened that led to the, the communication changes in the band. You know, there were multiple blowups over time, but the big one was, you know, between me and Misha. And it was a, I don't even remember what year this was. I remember we were, we were, we had just finished a show in West Virginia and we were on the, uh, the bandwagon and it was a stupid thing. It was about like, who was showering first? It was so <laughs> fucking dumb. It's always that kind of thing. Yeah. And of course it wasn't about that, that, you know, but there was a lot of tension for a while that was building. And for whatever reason that night and that thing was the, the thing that pushed it over the edge. We ended up, although it was like at first a really heated confrontation, you know, it wasn't like there was, there, were, there was, there was no physical part of it. There were no fists thrown or anything like that. It was just kind of like a blow up. But then instantly we both realized like, wait a minute, like, what are we doing? What are we doing? And like, wait, I didn't know that he felt this way and he didn't know that I felt this way and we've never communicated and then, dude, from that blow up like that, we, he and I sat down and talked on the bandwagon for like two hours directly from that. And we were, that's when we worked out, he and I, how we were going to communicate with each other going forward and what things were happening that we didn't know about. about. And since then, for the most part, like I would say it's been, you know, 100 percent 
awesome. Even if there are things to talk about, you know, that, that, that are uncomfortable between the two of us, we've been able to address it with each other. And we, and, and even more so we've been able to accept each other, you know, like I'm sure you guys can relate to this, but when you have two personalities that are alike in some way, like me and Misha are both very strong personalities. Like we're, we're definitely about to say that. Yeah. We're the most outspoken in the band, you know, I would say, um, and not to say the other guys, you know, don't speak up or can't speak up when they want to. They certainly do and can. But like naturally, that's just, you know, that's how we are. So we had to learn to deal with that. But what's cool is like we've now figured out and I'm, I'm not like trying to toot our horns, but it's just for me, it's a, a, something I'm proud of. Like we've figured out how to use those powerful personalities together. And sometimes it's it's so fun. Like if me and Misha are both pissed off about the same thing and we team up and then we like approach it, we're so good at the good cop, bad cop thing and we change sides and I can tell you some stories about it. But like there's moments like that where it's good. There's moments where it's like we have business decisions to make or, or we'll, you know, we'll have to be on calls with people to negotiate things and the two of us together are a really good team now because we, we know how to, how to work with each other. And like, you don't get that way just by chance. I think you need to go through a bunch of shit in order to really learn how to like trust that person and know that person's strengths and weaknesses and, and how to work together, you know? So I'm like, I'm so proud of those tough experiences because now it's like, it's kind of like now we can have longevity if we want it, God willing, you know? Yeah, you can't buy your way into that. The only way to do that is to work that shit out. And I would say that, you know, you you just said about when you have two strong personalities. I think the stronger the personalities, the more important it is to figure this kind of stuff out. And when you have a band, there's always going to be one, two, or three really strong personalities. When you have an entrepreneurial venture, you could have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven strong, you know, or more really strong personalities. I think the more capable someone is on their own and the more they've done on their own, like the more established of a person that they are, both as an individual and what they've done in life and how strong their vision is, the more important it is to figure that stuff out or you're going to clash like deer with and they're fucking antlers, basically. It's exactly what it is and what it was. I have a question. Mm-hmm. Who got to have the first shower? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was me. Ah, there you go. And so I'd say you win. So the issue, okay. We have a winner. Yeah, well, no, the, the that particular argument was, uh, you know, I, I always would finish the shows and like run out to the bandwagon and try to shower first because I was just, I was, I felt like, I was always the most disgusting. Like I sweat more than everybody, you know, I, and I'm really quick. I, I'm going to get the first shower, which was never something we talked about. And, and it was definitely an entitlement kind of thing, you know, for sure. Like I, I should not have approached it that way, but I was, and that pissed everybody off. But particularly that night, like Misha really wanted to, to, to get in there. And I was, already gunning for it and it was just the thing and then what was really cool is at the end of it it was like it came down to like all right man uh, you you go you you could totally go and he was like nah man like you go and like one of us went I think it was me I think I, I ended up going first but from then on that shower thing has been like just such a a no big deal thing you know it's like they know I like to shower 
right when I'm done because I get nasty. And oftentimes I will, but there's plenty of times when other people will too. And now we're like, we're, we're lucky enough to be touring in situations where most of the time there's multiple showers available. Like there's the venue showers or shower plus the bus shower. So it's like, it's, it's just not a big deal anymore. Such a stupid thing. We're all going to get to shower eventually, but it's, you know, you kind of like, it sounds petty, but it's not. And to anyone who might think that it's petty, just think about your living situation, right? If you have a living situation where people are not cooperating and not being uh, respectful of other people's space and needs, eventually that becomes a toxic living situation. Little things like that lead to divorce and lead to roommates not being friends anymore. And just, it leads to bad things. And when you're on tour, it's that. But, but I think multiplied because you can't go anywhere. You can't leave. You're stuck there. And those little things do start to add up. So yeah, who showers first sounds petty, but it's not. It's not because of what it represents in terms of mutual respect and all the other things that come along with that respect or lack thereof, I think. Yeah, well, and, and that situation too made me like start to think about other areas where I had like a pack mentality of, of like pack competition, right? Like, like I was competing in the pack to be first. And it was like little things that I noticed about myself. Like I would always try to order first at, at the, you know, at the coffee shop or the restaurant. I would always try to, you know, I know that seems dumb, but like I would, I would feel this weird, like sense of urgency to, to get there first. And my needs are, are more. And then when this kind of stuff happened, it was like, wait a minute, like where, where's the, where's the rush? And why do you feel this way? What is the reason that's driving you to do this? Because in reality, like, you're talking about going to a fucking Wendy's. They're not going <laughs> to run out of food. You're going to get a spicy chicken sandwich, whether you're first or last. It doesn't fucking matter. You know, like these were these were literal talks that I had to have with myself that that I realized like, whoa, like these dudes are right. Like I didn't realize it before, but I was showing all the, the these like in, entitlement like behaviors and, you know, forms of fear and anxiety that were showing up in the need to be first and the need, you know, to like, you know, getting to catering before anybody else. It was like that. That was a that was one of those things. And it's like, I don't want to be that guy at all. And it took instances like I described with the shower and other things where people were able to point it out to me to where it was like, holy fuck, they're right. And this is ridiculous. And there's no need for it realistically. And you know what? Like I, I'm going to take a step back. And I had to purposefully force myself to go last. I had to purposefully force myself to, you know, take the back seat. But through those, like through that, the lesson was like, you still get the same result at the end of the day. Like by ordering last, you let everybody go first, but you still get what you were going to get if you ordered first. By taking a shower last, you still get a fucking shower. So like, what? Where, where's the fire? Did you figure out what was causing that? Not specifically, but it was just... I mean, we've talked a lot about anxiety before, but it was just another another way for anxiety to rear its head for me um, that I needed to conquer. And, you know, it's funny. Anxiety is not like a, a, a one one big thing that's, you know, it's only one thing. Like there are so many different forms of anxiety in so many ways that, that it shows in people through their behaviors and, and that the, so many different ways that fear shows in people's behaviors, uh, rational or irrational. But oftentimes, like if, well, every time, if you're motivated to, to figure out 
like where those fears are coming from or not even go that deep, but just like have somebody point out to you an instance where it's happening. And then you can look at that and reason with yourself, like, is this ridiculous or is this warranted? And if you can say it's warranted and you can explain why you're, you're doing that behavior and there's a reasonable, logical reason for it, then maybe it's not anxiety based. Maybe there's like a real reason. But if it's ridiculous and it is like a matter of irrationality, then that should say something to you and you should look at that and try to figure out how to combat that. And oftentimes the way to do that is to put yourself in the uncomfortable situation that you're afraid of and um, and face it and see what the outcome is because it's never as bad as you imagine it to be. And then you learn from it. Well, And here, here's the fucking funny part about this whole shower thing too <laughs> is like part of my fear back then was like I was worried about getting a hot shower yeah, that's what I was going to say. Actually. I don't give a fuck. No, I don't, like, I don't care. That is kind of funny. Yeah, I, like I'll purposefully go last now to take a cold shower. You know, like I, I don't give a fuck. So <laughs> it's just, it's funny how these things work out. You know, then, then, then we could talk about intermittent fasting and not worrying about fucking being the first one in line at Wendy's. I'll hold off. I'll eat something healthier next time. Isn't that part of what all the deprivation work is about is uh, toughening up? for the world. Yeah. It is part of it. It is. A hundred percent is. I mean, yeah, it, it, it does absolutely help. It's just funny when you, when you realize like how it can apply to your life now, you know, and like, and how, how it could have applied to the things that were happening back then. But I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm so, so much more relaxed about those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, I got to say like with a kid on the way, I'm really thinking about all these things. You know, because I know, you know, to be a good parent, to be a good dad, just to be a good caregiver to anybody is to put put other people first in a lot of ways. You know, obviously, I'm not discounting the importance of taking care of myself. And, and that's very important to me to, like, make sure I, I give myself the time that I need every day if I can. But, like, put other people first, take care of others be be the leader that sits at the back of the pack sometimes rather than the leader that is always charging out front. Finding those dynamics, you know, is uh, is something that I've been thinking about a lot in regards to a kid and how I can apply those lessons to my businesses, my band, my relationship, my wife, family, and then how I can apply what I've already learned from all of those things to the kid as well, you know? Yeah, one thing I remember that Bill Burr was talking about on his podcast a lot was when his kid was on the way, he decided to start going to therapy. I mean, I don't know him personally, but he says that he's an explosive person with a temper. And you can see it in his comedy. Like, you can see how that would be true. Yeah. That uh, according to him, he would get irrationally angry, just zero to pissed <laughs> in no time. And uh, he didn't want to upload that to the kid. He didn't want the kid growing up around that sort of thing. Not like he was an abuser or anything like that, but he just didn't want to teach the kid that that's how you react, that that's the way to react to stress. Um, and so started getting therapy for it. Um, I, I think that if you actually care about how you affect the people around you, it does behoove you to figure out these quirks, why you do them, or at least if you can't figure out why you do them, at least figure out that you do them so you can make yourself chill because it does affect everyone. Yeah. How to identify when like the warning signs and what to do. And, you know, patience is, is a tough thing. It's when you have a kid, 
you know, again, I don't have that experience personally yet, but I've heard all the stories and I've heard all the suggestions of like the kids can really try you and they can drive you nuts and you got to learn how to like really exercise patience, know when to put the kid down. You know, I've heard this saying so many times, it's like the kid never hurt himself crying for a bit while you go walk outside for five minutes and like take a few deep breaths. Like, you know, like I don't remember the exact saying, but it's so much better than to, to get frustrated at the, at the kid to just put it down in a safe place and like just go in another room or walk. Collect yourself. Collect yourself and then come back. And like, that's really important. And, you know, I, like I, I would get frustrated even, you know, in the past couple months, like when the dogs would do dumb shit, like whether, <laughs> you know, they're they're digging in the backyard or they're they're barking with the neighbor's dog and trying to dig under the fence, whatever it is, right? You get frustrated. It's like, what's wrong with you? But then you have to realize they're a dog. And I used to get really annoyed and like, like pissed off and it would like stick with me. And my wife said to me the other day, she's like, you know, I'm really, really proud of you because it seems like with those situations happening, you're getting better at like not letting it affect you long term. You know, it's like, I'll still get a little bit annoyed, but then like, I won't stay angry or stay pissed off. And that's not by accident. I'm really working on it. Like I'm really trying to, to like have those conversations with myself of being like, all right, the dog's a dog. Doesn't know that it's pissing you off. It's not trying to piss you off. It did this thing. It's not a big deal. It's not going to really affect you long-term. So acknowledge that it, that it's, it is frustrating, but then acknowledge that there was no meant harm and try to take a deep breath and move on from it. And those are the things that I'm trying to exercise now with with two fucking puppies so that I'm even better at it with a real kid, you know? I've actually found that just saying to myself what I want to be, I do it on my car journey to, to the studio actually every single day. If I wake up tired, I just tell myself it's just temporary. There's no need to be upset about it or, you know, something's pissed me off. It's just a case of it doesn't matter. Like it's so insignificant in comparison to every single day. And I think just saying it out loud can really change your mindset. I know that I've been happy the last couple of weeks that I've been doing that. Absolutely. Yeah, well, we can't control how, like, how we're wired, I think. We can't control how we're, what our nature is, but we can control how we express that nature. And react to it and as how well. how we react yeah. to our impulses. Yeah, that's the hard part. That that's that's the work, right? You yeah. know, that's the endless work that we have to do for ourselves and for others and in every relationship. It's it's challenging, but if for nobody else you do it for yourself because John, like to your point, like you do feel better. Yeah. When you give yourself whether it's the pep talk or whether it's just the pause to take a deep breath or you know, go do something that you know will chill you out. It's it's just so much better for you. You know, it it I don't know. It's so worth it. And it's good that like these kinds of conversations are happening in this area because probably in a place that's a little bit unexpected, you know, like we're like, I don't think this is a, a self-help uh, <laughs> podcast by any by any means, you know, necessarily. No. But like, it's good that this shit happens in places where it's least expected, because I always find that when I'm when I when I hear this shit in a time when I'm not expecting it. Or like when it when it comes out of the blue, it's when I probably most remember it. So hopefully, you know, this uh, <laughs> this is a nice reminder for everybody. I don't know. Well, I think uh, our listeners appreciate uh, this kind of stuff because um, I think that the human side of trying to make this stuff work is, uh, for the most part, ignored. People focus 
on the technical side of things, the music side of things. And I don't, it's like earlier I asked you if the musical part was just a given. And I mean, I didn't mean that you guys don't work hard at it or anything. No, of course not. I know. But like, for instance, just like if, if someone comes on this podcast, it's a given that they're awesome at what they do. And so there's, we don't need to qualify that. And so if like someone is a musician, it's a given that they're trying to be as good as possible or at something related to the music that that part to me is the given. I mean, if they, and if they're not doing that, then they're not even in the conversation. But so given that that part should be assumed, I think it's all this other stuff that really, really matters. How do you get along with other people? How do you deal with uh, with the risks involved? How do you keep your brain in check? I mean, yeah, because if, if you don't do the musical part, then you're not even going to get to the point where you can ask these questions about how to keep your music career going or starting in the first place. Right, yeah. And so in that sense, it is a given, like, we've all earned our stripes in terms of that aspect of it. And we all do work hard and know the expectations, you know, of, 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 of each of us musically, but the work and, and everything else is, is so much more of the time. And I mean, even think about like on tour, you know, it's like you're on stage 30 to 60 minutes. That's it. What are you doing with these people that you're with the rest of the day? You're pissing them off. You know, like, <laughs> You're damn right. Yeah, exactly. So it's like it, just even that that ratio of the amount of time that you are on stage versus not, it's it just that alone should very clearly show the importance of every other aspect of interpersonal relationships and how to navigate those waters, you know, and, and for the good, for the better. So all that said, can we talk about music for a little bit? Hell yeah. Uh, this will be like the first time that we ever talk about music on a <laughs> podcast with you. I was going to say, dude, if we started talking really about like saunas and ice baths, this week, dude, everybody has had enough. Wait, let's move on. Well, we've, we've done that already. I actually want to talk about music a little bit because, uh, you know, it's mostly guitar players that listen to this and you're not a guitar player, obviously. And so I wanted to use this as a, a way to maybe get in the head of a drummer who has worked with really awesome guitar players and uh, kind of pick your brain a little bit about what it is that you look for in a guitar player, how you communicate with guitar players, how you prefer that they communicate with you, how you know that you're working with a really good one, what the differentiators are, things like that. I, I think that that would be fascinating to guitar players out there because um, as we all know, getting the right drummer in your band is a make or break kind of proposition. Uh, you cannot have a good heavy band, really any genre, but especially since this is centered around heavy music, you cannot have a good heavy music project without the right drummer. And drummers, you need to know how to communicate with them. Absolutely. First things first, how do you prefer that guitar players approach you with ideas? With Periphery, it's pretty cool because speaking of chemistry, the chemistry that's there between me and Misha is, has always been really strong in, in, in regards to the music, the musical side. He's a fantastic drummer. I would argue that he has one of the greatest drumming minds of anybody I've ever met. His mind for rhythm and beats and tasteful things, like it's like exactly what I love. You know, he really knows how to nail it 
And in that regard, it's it's pretty much always been easy in terms of like how he communicates ideas to me or like how he communicates the things that like. So he thinks like a drummer. A hundred percent. I mean, he is a drummer. He actually started on drums with Periphery, didn't he? Yeah, he uh, he's a good drummer too, for sure. Like he's he's a he's a really good drummer, and he can he knows how a drummer thinks because he is one. But like he knows how I think as a drummer, for sure. And I mean, a lot of that has come from all the years of us playing together, for you know, a hundred percent. But even before I was in the band, months before, you know, he saw me play, and he has told me many times that like even in that instance, he totally could relate to me as a drummer and like totally got what I was about right then and there. So I'm really lucky in that regard because when they, you know, right now the guys are together for a writing session and I'm not there, you know, for, for obvious reasons with the kid on the way and the stuff that they've been writing and sending over, you know, it's never completely fleshed out. Like Misha doesn't decide these are the drum parts, right? But he'll program ideas that he'll think I like. And I know that like he gets excited to, for me to listen to those parts because he's excited for me to comment and be like, I noticed that little thing that you put in there at three minutes and 24 seconds. That's the shit. I would totally play that. You know, he gets off on that and so do I. Like, I love hearing those things. And then there's so much freedom within that space because when he puts an idea in there, I know how far... I can go to push it and I know how close I should stay to it because of the guitar composition aspect of it. Right. Like I have, I have so much freedom to change the parts from the demos that we write and to, you know, to really like develop them into what the songs eventually become. But I really try actually to base everything that I play off of the melodies. So when you're talking about like what I look for, in a guitar player is I look for somebody who like has a great ear for melody and does not give a fuck about like the technical noodling shit. You know, Brown, it's fucking why I love your playing. Like Thank you. you have a great ear for melody and a ridiculous ear for rhythm. And like those two things combined has always excited me. And like, I can even think back to, you know, jamming with you at Mark's buddy's base, you know, Mark's uh, buddy's basement yes. in DC. Yeah. Like, how much fun we had playing because of that that rhythmic and melodic chemistry that was there. And like even hearing old demos that that you were writing, you know, way back when. And like I always just got off on the the rhythmic intersection with melody. You know, I don't care about playing fast. I don't care. And it's the same thing with drumming. Like I don't care if I play fast on the drums. I don't care about like crazy fills and crazy patterns and trying to be the most techie fucking drummer out there. It's the same thing with the guitar players. I just I, I want I want to play with people who just put feeling into it and understand how to utilize rhythm with melody in a way that gets the point across, if that makes sense. Total sense. Perfect sense. You know, um, the thing about Misha being a drummer, I think people should really, really key in on um, because I've noticed one of the biggest complaints that drummers have is getting parts given to them by guitar players who don't know how drummers think. And obviously, you know, they, they'll work around it, but it does get in the way. And um, in some ways, in some circumstances, it can destroy the chemistry or 
destroy a working relationship because if the guitar player gets too hung up on these parts that make no sense in real life. So I would encourage any guitar player out there who's who wants to do this in a band with a drummer to take some lessons, even for like six months or something, just so you can understand how a kit feels. And then also, uh, if you're not willing to do that, at least take your 10 favorite songs and program the drums to them. Well, hit, hit by hit. So you start to understand how your favorite drummers think at least, at least so that the parts that you write start to take that on. They start to take on, um, what real drummers do so that when you're communicating to a drummer, you're communicating in their language, either that, or just don't give them drum parts. It's quite interesting. Actually, when you start programming your favorite songs, you start noticing like the nuances of each drummer, even without actually yep. playing the drums. Like for example, Joey Dawson and quads, you know, and then cause you're a drummer, Mario doesn't use a kick drum in his fills um, and stuff like that. So like, it's, it's really important. I think that all guitar players do that, or at least observe their drummer and see what they're doing if they're in a band with them so that they can follow their nuances. It's no different than guitar players that go and play the same kind of licks. You know, we play in the same kind of scales because that's what we enjoy the sound of. It's the same with drummers, just no notes. <laughs> totally. Well, and yeah, like there's there's two things. One, I want to make sure that I give a nod to, to the other guys in the band too, because although they're not drummers, because of how closely we, we, we typically are when we write this stuff, they're in there for all these conversations and they pick up on it too. And of course, after playing together for so long, they also know my tendencies and they each have gotten incredibly good at like knowing knowing what I would play because you know everybody in the band brings guitar parts to the table it's not you know it's obviously not just me as you guys know everybody does and everybody writes on their own and it's amazing how much better they've they've all gotten at programming ideas that are essentially inspired by the way that I might play drums because I'm their drummer right so it, it's super cool and like Having the the side project with uh, with Spencer King Mothership, you know, a, a lot of people don't know this about him, but that that motherfucker plays everything. Like he is a ridiculous guitar player, a ridiculous bass player. He can play keys. He can compose. He knows music way more than what people may suspect. Uh, and he really also loves drums. He loves drummers. He doesn't really play, but he has studied different styles of music. And that's the other point I wanted to make is like beyond all the things that you both just said, which are very important things to do as guitar players who don't play drums. You also should really pay attention to other styles of music and not just pay attention to the guitars, really pay attention to drummers. Like this might be a funny little exercise, but like get to know the names of the drummers in the bands you like, because that will help you to really identify who they are as a person and what kind of things they play. And it's a subtle thing, but like it, it definitely helps like to, to picture the person and then kind of have a better understanding of how that person plays drums. Um, and it's funny because it's like, it's not always what you think. Because there's drummers that play ridiculous parts that you're like, I can't believe that guy is a drummer or that girl is a drummer. I don't want to say names, but there's certain people that that it's just so it's it's like funny to watch them play, not because they look funny, but it's because like the sounds that are coming out of that person, it's like unbelievable, and it's like wow, I just that's crazy. Didn't think they had that in them. 
but it's cool when like that kind of thing happens because then it becomes an identifier, a unique identifier. But uh, yeah, dude, it's just paying attention to other styles of music and focusing on what the drums do in different settings is so important. And I'm lucky as a drummer because when I was when I was younger, one of my teachers said to me, you know, all you really listen to are the drums. You know, I was really good when I was a kid at, at like learning the drum parts that the drummers played in every song I listened to. I could I could memorize parts that were written perfectly and really fast because that's what I focused on. And all it took was one drum teacher that I really respected to say to me, "Can you can you sing the melody of the guitar part?" And I was like, "No, I don't. I, I'm I don't know it." And he's like, "Well, that's your assignment for next week. I want you to be able to come back and with this song, I want you to be able to hum to me and sing to me." the guitar part. And then the next week it was sing the bass part. What's the vocalist melody like? And it, it fucking blew my mind, but it opened me up so much to like understanding what is, what it means to be a musician, not just a drummer, right? I don't play other instruments. Like I don't play guitar. I don't play keys. I, I suck at everything else. But when it comes to writing, the way that I interact and contribute and communicate is via melody you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not shy to sing melodies or to sing rhythms to those guys. And the way that I ultimately decide on my drum parts is really through a process that involves really no drums at first. It's all about internalizing melody. What's the lead guitar doing? You know, what, what's Misha's part? What's Jake's part? What's Mark's part? What is Spencer doing? What's the bass line? What are the ambient things that are happening. If I put all those together, how do they make me feel? What do they tell me about the song? Like, you know, what what kind of um, drum part would work well to make this part better? Uh, and that's how I approach it. But the only way to do that is to truly immerse yourself in the melodies before I ever really pay attention to the drums. You know, that's always the process for me. I think that's the difference between being an instrumentalist and a musician. Yep. Sure. Yeah kind of like the difference between being an illustrator and an artist. Yeah. And you could always be both, right? I mean, that's oh, the yeah, goal. Absolutely. Yeah. You should, you, you should definitely be both. You should work to be both. But, um, and this is stuff that I teach all the time, like in, in my lessons, you know, whether it's to drummers that are just starting off or drummers that are really experienced, maybe just in one area, you know, I always can identify that pretty quickly. And I always try to make a point to, to encourage people to get out of your comfort zones even with the music you like, start there before you get into other styles that like you're that are foreign to you. Like if you as a drummer have never really analyzed the melody of the guitar and you can't sing it back, how can you ever expect to play the drum part correctly? Because if it's a composition, everything works together in almost like an orchestra. And you, you need to be able to identify every individual piece to understand how it works with every other piece. The best drummers I've ever worked with, Sean Reiner, RIP, and Kevin Talley, they were both, like, I know that Sean played a bunch of instruments and was a very educated musician. And so when I gave him music, he just understood everything. And I'm imagining that it was the same in the bands he's legendary for, and that's why... He's so great was his musical understanding, not just the ability on the drums. And Kevin plays a little guitar, but he understands music like a composer, like a musician, which is how he makes his drum parts so savagely awesome. Um, 
he's it's not just thinking blast beat double bass fast fill blast beat double bass another fast fill and then another fast fill and then we'll do another kind of blast it he's actually thinking in terms of tension and release and intensity and all those cool cool things and that's i think that's what set them apart from a lot of the drummers I recorded who could play fast, recorded a bunch of drummers who could play fast, but like you could tell that their musical understanding wasn't really locked in, I guess. Like they were just playing fast parts. And to me, that's what makes a difference between someone that's really good and someone that's great is uh, their understanding combined with their actual technical skill. Yeah. And you talk about people like that. I mean, fucking look at Mikey. <laughs> Mike Malian can play guitar. He's ridiculous. Play, he can play bass. He can sing. He plays keys. He plays keys like a madman, too. Yeah, it's insane. Have you seen his cover of Stab Wound? He plays Stab Wound on a piano. That is a, a, a great example of, like, the utmost level of what we're talking about. You know, like, he, he really can play everything. And even in the production side of things, like, his interests are just so vast and, like, his abilities are vast, I think. You know, just to be able to record himself and, and the things that he's thrown himself into to get better at. You know, he's a, he's a true artist, man. And, and the other thing is, like, as a drummer, that dude is a monster. I mean, he's he's always been one of my favorite drummers ever since the first tour that we did together. Right. It's your fault why he's good, by the way. I doubt that, man. He's a he's 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 just good. <laughs> he's got that. But I mean, no, no, it's your it's your fault. It's actually your fault. <laughs> you did it to him. Yeah, he didn't know what a trigger was. Did he ever tell you that story? I know that story, and yeah. that's why he's so goddamn consistent. Yeah. That's why he hits so hard. And and I love that about him. Like, that is it's something that we share. Like, I, I've never used triggers. He doesn't either. And it's it's one of the things that I love about his playing. Just And that was it. Like, the, I, I didn't know anything about him as a player when we first met, right? Like, I just, I, I mean, I assumed he was good, but it's like, then you watch him play, and I was like, this kid's what, fucking 17, 18? I don't even remember how young he was. He was six. How old was he then on that first tour with Tesseract? Well, 17 or 18. What year was it? He's born in 1992. It was like 2009 or 2010. It was early. It was 2011. So he was, I think he was, oh, right. I think oh, he was right. 18. Yeah. He was 18 years old. And I mean, he was just crushing. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> I loved watching, I still love watching him play. But, that's a drummer who absolutely understands the things that we're talking about. And, you know, I'd be curious, like, how do you guys communicate? Because I'd imagine it's a very similar way to, like, how me and the, the guys in Periphery would communicate rhythmically, melodically. Yeah, I guess over the years, obviously, I've gotten better at programming drums. I don't play drums. I understand it. I understand. Well, Mike sort of, he made the barrier on what's possible kind of, like, washed out. Because... A lot of the stuff that I programmed originally before we met, I just didn't think a drummer could possibly play it. I just thought it sounded cool. And then he yeah. comes along and just plays it. Um, so I guess like in terms of that communication, I kind of to a degree will understand roughly what Mike would do. And I leave certain elements of it completely open-ended. And Mike knows that by this point, it's just focusing on the important accents, which is what we try to do. Like one thing that we've actually never been able to do as a band actually is uh, really delve in once the vocals had been written. And we've started doing that now, which is obviously 
helped tremendously because it's just, as we were talking about, the building of layers and melodies and then finding your spot in between everything that's going on. It's that can change during the process of the writing. Like you can have a guitar riff that you think is absolutely incredible, but then the vocals go on top of it and you're like, I need to hit that like with a separate note. And it would be, you know, really cool if we did that. And it's like opened up a, in a way, a can of worms <laughs> to explore even further. And, you know, right. So yeah, I mean, constantly evolving. Mike knows what I'm going to do. We feed off each other. It's really good for that. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I wouldn't expect any less. You know, it's like when you, when you have people that understand those aspects of it and they're really simple aspects, it's like understand how the rhythms and the melodies work together. You know, that, that concept is, is pretty straightforward, you know, on paper, but you, you also then have to put in the work to some degree and whether it's as extreme as someone like Mike, who is able to play so many instruments so, so proficiently, or on the other end, someone like me, who's a dumbass when it comes to other instruments and can't do it, but had a good teacher who was just like, hey, pay attention to all these other facets of a song so that you can communicate with your bandmates, you know, over time and 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 know what to play and how to do it. And I got to say, too, I mean, I don't know if this is where you wanted to go with it, but like I've played with a lot of musicians over the years and, and in a ton of different bands in a ton of different settings. You know, and some of the the most important lessons I've learned as a drummer took place in live settings with band leaders, you know, like playing, uh, playing in bars, being hired for that night to play with with guys that you've never played with before because somebody needs you to sub in for them. And, you know, the songs, but there's always different renditions of the songs that every cover artist will will do. And. There's always different things they're used to. Some guys really want you to hit hard. Some guys really want you to play really, you know, lay back and be soft. Some people want you to be flashy. Some people want you to lay, you know, to, to kind of keep it more conservative. I learned so much through those experiences and through what, through literally having band leaders look back at me and be like, like, no, don't do that. Or like, fuck yeah, keep that going. And you learn to read people and you learn to, to know when, Oh, this dude's going to take a guitar solo. I'm going to chill back. This dude's going to take a bass solo. I'm going to chill back. You know, like play. This is the other piece of advice that that, I, that people always ask, like, what should we do? How do I get better? How do, what is my, what should my band do? It's like, well, one, individually, if you have the opportunity, play with as many people as possible in different settings, because you will learn so much about how to essentially be a chameleon in different musical settings with different people. But as a band, play everywhere you possibly can, you know, even if it's in someone's backyard or if it's in a restaurant with nobody watching you and salt and pepper shakers on the tables or in front of a fucking huge crowd or in front of bands that intimidate you. Like you need to get that experience of playing in front of bands that are better than you. And, you know, you got to also eat shit and like know that that's going to happen and learn from it. All of these things are so important for your development as a musician individually, but then also as part of an ensemble. Just going a little bit deeper into that as well, just because um, this is what reminded me of that situation was actually jamming with you back in uh, 2011, just before we did the US tour. And, you know, over the years, Monuments, we've had a number of different drummers, a number of different singers, and obviously 
the drummer thing is one thing I want to focus on. Number of different awesome drummers. Yeah, this is yes. this is the thing you see. So right, we've had obviously Mikey, Anoop Sastry, Alex Rudinger's filled in. Lango. All killer. All killer players. All killer players, yeah. Yeah. And even though they're all killer, they were still completely different even while playing the same songs. And I think it's really important that I mean, we did this example AL actually with on that creative live course where, you know, two guitar players, me and Ollie, were playing the riff. Yep. And it sounded completely different. And I think you actually have to learn people when it comes to music, because uh everyone has their isms. Like, like, for example, with Alex, one thing that always came to me is just how he's almost pushing the beat because he's just so on it. So a lot of the time we were playing those songs and I thought they were really fast just because even just that little difference just made it feel completely different for me. Oh, yeah. Whereas like playing with you, it's like it's so relaxed and it's going kind of in the opposite direction where I have more time to find that pocket same with Mikey as well so it's just um there's so much to be learned by playing with multiple different people even if you're playing the same songs yeah it's funny I could like if you had said to me tell me my experience with all those drummers I could totally tell you what it would be and it's all there I mean those guys are all monsters but you're right like the feel is absolutely going to vary you know I'd say in it's funny if like if you looked at that range of drummers not that you asked, but it's this is kind of a fun <laughs> exercise. It's like, I think you have me and Mikey really on the end of like the laid back, like pocket, really deep pocket side. And then you have a noop who's like pretty close to there. But can this is the thing about a noop. He can, he can do all of it. If he needs to play in a situation where he is dead on the beat, he's perfect. If he needs to play ahead of the beat, he's perfect. If he needs to lay back, he's perfect. He, that dude is, is like the definition of a chameleon session monster who can also fucking rip live. Like that dude can play anything. So like, it's funny. He, he really is the dude who can like, you know, meld to any musical situation and, and crush it. And then I think even Lango like lays back, but I think he, he might've been like more towards the middle too. And then of course you have Alex who is known for his precision. Like he is a, fucking surgeon on the drums he is so precise and like knows exactly what he wants and doesn't settle for less and that's an amazing talent on top of everything else that dude can do like it's it he's an absolute maniac but you're right it's like we're talking about milliseconds of differences but it means all the uh, it means so much in how you know you approach it so you're right you really do have to like get to know these musicians and, and what they do and it's funny like Looking at periphery, everybody in the band has different tendencies in that regard too. It's like how how uh, Misha plays guitar is very different than how Jake plays guitar, very different from how Mark plays guitar. And I mean, I would say probably nine times out of ten, if you blindfolded me, blindfolded me and played a riff, you know, I could tell you whose riff it was. By now, I think most people can do that. But even in, just from a feel, even if they were playing the same riff, I could tell you who's who. You know. Yeah. Do you think that pocket can be developed? Yeah, a hundred percent. But it's also like finding that relatability to understand it, right? Like it's hard to teach it for sure, isn't it? 
it's like one of those things you have to sort of go on your own path and learn. It is, but, but you know, it's funny, man. Like this gets into the stuff that like I want to teach in my course because there's a different lesson plan for every single person in this regard because everybody has, in my opinion, the ability to develop feel, rhythm, pocket, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, the, the depth of that will vary from person to person, but it's how you relate to that person that will help them to tap into it. I think a lot of people get, get, uh, scared because it's like, they're very on the nose about it. It's like, Oh, if I, if I need to be a drummer with feel, then I have to try to be a drummer with feel. And, and I have to do all this on the drums. And I would argue, well, wait a minute. No, you need to figure out how to under understand this concept somewhere else in your life first. Right. And it can be as simple as like explaining and getting someone to pay attention to what happens to their body when they walk down the street. How does your body move when you walk? Are you creating a rhythm with your steps? Well, what's that rhythm like? What's your pace typically? What happens if you slow down? What happens if you speed up? What happens with the length of space between your right foot and your left foot? And how do your arms sway? And are you rigid or are you loose? And figuring out how to get people to identify these things to me is like the first step in having them understand the concept of pocket and feel. And then you can, over time and and more steps, apply that to the instrument of choice, right? I saw Josh from Issues posted on Twitter, posted a question, can you teach people to have rhythm or feel or whatever it was? And his stance was more like, I don't think you can. And I'm a staunch believer in the opposite of his opinion. I believe, because I've seen it. I've literally watched people who have no fucking idea how to approach rhythm. I've watched them change and actually develop it through certain concepts and exercises and things that do not happen on the drums, that happen away from the drums. So like... It was, it's funny. I don't ever chime in on stuff like that. Like I try to stay out of arguments and out of debates, (laughs) but that was, that was one that I just felt so strongly about weighing in on because I just disagreed with, with that sentiment that like, oh, you can't teach that. Well, I think that's bullshit. You can, and I've seen it happen, but you have to be willing to meet that person where they are and ask questions about them and learn about them to help them figure out what is the thing that's going to help them figure it out. If that makes sense. Like a guitar player that's always rushing, for instance, how do you get them to learn to lay back? It's a, it's a toughie. Well, it goes back to that communication thing. I mean, one, do they know that they're always rushing and are they willing to, to accept that, you know, I may want to tell them that, you know, like, so, so that's the first step is, is that person aware of it? Yes or no. If yes, do they want to fix it? Yes or no. If yes, then having a drummer who does under or someone in the band who understands rhythm, you can really help them. And and a lot of it is just like, again, teaching someone how to create more space within their movements in other areas that then can be applied to their instrument. And then once you do apply it to that instrument, it's a lot of practice with something like a metronome. But it's interesting how much a metronome can help somebody with this in ways that most people don't really consider, right? Like, and John, you'll get this, but like the way you play when listening to a quarter note metronome is going to be a lot different, especially from a like relaxed sort of laid back standpoint. Like it's kind of hard 
to lay back and relax in a quarter note click setting because you're really having to focus on the click and listen in to make sure that you're not deviating from it in the in the space between the beats. You know, that is a that and that is something that you should practice to get better at having your own feel and movements. But at first, you shouldn't start with that. And that's that's the problem. A lot of people just throw on whatever click is on. It's a four-four click and it's all quarter notes and you know, you kind of rush and push and pull within that. But if you put on something like a 16th note click with the right accents, it helps you to stay right in that space because every individual subdivision is being supported by a sound that's there no matter what. You don't have to think about it. So you're able to lay back more and focus on just being present with the part mm-hmm. and moving your body with that, right? The, the analogy that I always use or I always fuck this up. It sounds so dumb. I can't remember if it's a metaphor or analogy, but whatever. Maybe you guys can tell me. But like the thing that I always explain to students is like, imagine if you had to cross a, a body of water, like a lake, right? And the only way to get across that lake was if there were four individually spaced rocks and you had to jump <laughs> perfectly from the, the water's edge to the one rock And you had to move from that rock to the next one, to the next one without them sinking in and without falling off, going too far, you know, not making the jump properly. Like that's a stressful fucking situation to try to hit that one little space. But if you fill in all the spaces between the rocks with other rocks that are evenly placed, you can just stroll right the fuck across relaxed. And that's how I always think about being able to help people develop rhythm specifically people that are rushing or dragging, you help them by getting them to feel more comfortable in the context of a click that does a lot of that work for them. That's an analogy. That is a really good analogy. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, cool. I thought, I thought so. So my, my intuition was right to say analogy (laughs) first. Yeah, there you go. All right. So I know we're running out of time and we have some questions from listeners, so we should probably do that if you're down. Definitely down. Yeah. Okay. Question for Luke Garcia, Matt, First off, incredible groove. Thank you for what you bring to the music world. Any advice for guitarists who struggle with odd meter concepts? Yeah, listen to a lot of odd meter and do exactly what I was talking about before, which is like try your best before you ever try to play or write music like that. Try your best to be able to actually sing the melodies that you like, you know, with odd meter from other songs first. If you can sing and like hum other songs, that are in odd meter, you'll get so much better at one, understanding it, being able to count it, and then applying it to your own writing, in my opinion. And that's just me not being a a guitar player of how I would approach it. Make it real life. Yeah, totally. I have a question here from Max Kush. Could you elaborate on the placement of ghost notes? Are you using them to keep the groove or as placeholders for more complicated hit placements? As a guitar player, they are very elusive. Hmm. It's really just a form of movement to create more flow within the context of the song. It's kind of like your uh, your analogy of the metronome, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. And I mean, ghost notes aren't even necessarily meant to be heard as much as they're meant to be felt. And feeling is something that I think is felt through motion or emotion. And I always say the more you move the more you groove. So to me, ghost notes really are a product of of that kind of fluidity and motion that gets created. So again, it's something that I learned 
something that I really learned and really got good at in those musical settings I was talking about where like you're playing in a bar and no one's there to watch the band. You're just a, a fucking cover band that no one really cares about. It's just background noise. But how cool would it be if you could engage the audience that is there and get them to pay attention to the band and get them into it? So I, I started thinking about ways to create movement and flow and be, you know, be able to be more eye-catchy as a drummer without being flashy and crazy, learning how to utilize things like ghost notes and bobbing your head and moving your body appropriately within the music was a way to, to capture that attention. And it worked every time. And it also has a audible effect on the music. It makes it more fluid. It makes it more laid back. It makes it feel like there's more space available, you know? In lots of ways, I've always thought that ghost notes take up the same kind of space as when you hear a shaker come in on a chorus or double bass or something like that. It just serves to keep the momentum going. Yeah, I would agree with that. So question from Jordan Durant. Hey, Matt, hope you're well. How do you decide what riffs or sections require the kick to directly follow the guitar as opposed to accenting specific beats? It's usually fairly obvious in terms of like, if everybody is playing the same thing, then it's, I need to play the same thing as everybody else. If there is an outlying sort of melody or rhythm that requires a couple extra accents that deviate from everything else, then usually that's a conversation. You know, like nobody in the band makes autonomous decisions in terms of what we end up writing. So if there's a part where, you know, the majority of the of the hits are on the accents with everybody else, but like maybe Spencer's doing something that for me in the vocal line, I hear the importance of an extra kick drum here or there or an extra accent here or there. I'll bring it up. I'll be like, hey, what do you guys think if I try this? What do you, what do you guys think if I accent Spencer? Spencer, how do you feel if I accent that? Should I stay with everybody else or is it cool if I experiment with this? And and that's, you know, it's usually a conversation um, and through experimentation that we figure that out. Makes sense. Total sense. So, uh, so we have a question from Adam Steele, our resident here at Riffard. <laughs> I know a lot of the time live, Matt didn't have the thump of the cabs to feel the groove with the rest of the band, although not so much now. How do you lock in when there's no real low end to feel? One, I always have... In my in-ears, I always have the bass parts, which Nolly still does perform. Although he's not there with us live, I always can can hear the bass. Um, but I actually really always try to have a wedge next to me that is kick drum and, and low end, just so I can have that. And then um, on certain tours, uh, I'll use like the butt kicker, which will absolutely give you that low end right up your arse, <laughs> um, which is great. But, uh, you know, it's funny, live, I don't listen to any of the other live performances in my in-ears. All I'm listening to is typically album tracks. Um, and it's usually just the full song. That's that's what my drummer did. Yeah, I don't want to fuck up. Because the album tracks don't fuck up. Right, exactly. They're consistent every night, and we don't have parts in our, in our live sets where we deviate at all. Like, you know, maybe in, in interludes and things like that. But when we play the songs, we play the songs. So I don't want to have any variables, especially when everything is reliant on staying on the click um, and staying on beat. It helps to have the the low end there, but it's not a make or break. The make or break for me is having the consistent uh, tracks in my ear every night. Question from Jazdev Sani. How would a modern drummer compete with software like TuneTrack, et cetera, in the studio? 
I don't think there is really any competition in terms of performance, you know, like you can, you can literally play anything that you program. If you work at it, even if it's a part that seems hard at first, you can always learn the part or augment it to some degree. I think the only real difference is in the quality of the sound, right? The tuning of the drums is very important. So focusing on making sure you can get the drums to sound as good as they may sound when used for a, like a sample recording session, right? So focusing on that aspect of, of the studio is important. And then obviously working with engineers, uh, you know, and, and producers who can have a keen ear to that, that skill of, of hearing when a drum slips in terms of the, the tuning or the tone, or when a drum head's getting beat up, you know, to where you, it's time to switch it out in the studio. To me, I've always, you know, especially as somebody who like runs a drum sample company, it's like, it's one of the greatest tools for a drummer, in my opinion, you can have because you can you can literally program and hear your ideas instantly and decide whether or not they work for the composition. And then you can use that to essentially like monitor how well you're learning the parts and how well you're actually developing the feel of those parts. You can match them up and, and you know, see if you're actually doing it right. I, to me, it's it's uh it's two things that work together, not compete with each other. I agree with you. Plus fucking practice. Totally. Yeah. If you don't want to be replaced by uh, GGD <laughs> or superior fucking practice. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, now that being said, it's like briefly for bands that are just starting out that don't really have the funds. Like, like if you're deciding to spend money on a studio for your drummer or like a marketing budget, fucking spend the money on the marketing budget and program the drums for that first record or second record. Like yep. most people won't know the difference and it really comes down to like a pride thing at that point. But if those are the two decisions, like spend your, your funds on figuring out ways that can help get your band out there to more people versus something that like a very few people are going to be able to tell the difference on, you know? Even even recorded drums lately with the with certain producers or just certain decisions being made, they're augmented and sampled anyway. So like you really can't tell half the time. I would say unless your drummer is like a feature. And even then, I mean Meshuga did it. They did it. Yeah. yeah. Fear Factory did it. They did it quite far into their careers as well. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, and you exactly. talk about a drummer who's a fucking feature. Yeah. Yeah. He's a monster. There you go. So question here from Marcin Visaki. Sorry if I pronounced that wrong. This is probably an extremely noob question, but is there a rule of thumb for choosing a symbol for a given part? Are some of the generally used for certain things and not the others, or is it a matter of preference? I always go with what sounds best to me, but most of the time I have no idea if that's realistic at all. How do you approach this when you want to go for a certain effect? His approach is perfect. Just go with what feels right. If you have toys to play with, you know, experiment with them. But at the end of the day, I don't ever, ever spend any time thinking about like which crash I should hit for this particular accent. Usually it's just feel, right? You know, or it becomes obvious if, if it's like a, a really quote unquote genty part, <laughs> it's probably going to be on a stack <laughs> or a china. And then when it opens up a bit, you move to a crash. I mean, there's kind of like standard practice things, I think, that have kind of been solidified in these different genres. But no, I, I think feel is definitely the uh, the thing you should rely on to make those kinds of decisions. Do what feels right and sounds right to you. 
There's no rules. That's why learning how to play drums can help. Because if he's wondering what's realistic and what's not, well, if you learn how to play drums some, you'll be able to answer that question yourself. Yeah, totally. Just remember pedal hat all the time. That's all you got to know. <laughs> what's Jay's shirt? More pedal hat? Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jay, Jay from Tesseract, man. He is uh, he is one of also those pedal hat them. kings. He is such a fucking great drummer. And like, what a good message. Like, work on that pedal hat. Craig Reynolds was telling me the other day that like, by working on his pedal hat, it actually helped him become more balanced on the kit, which helped him physically, like, and with some of his ailments of his hips. So it's more than just, uh, you know, a cool thing to do when you're playing drums. It's It actually can help with balance, which you know, can help obviously ergonomics. I, I can imagine that it almost works like your uh, your analogy of the river as well, because it's almost like just a tempo for you to like make sure you're in time to. <laughs> yeah, it's a way to create your own metronome, right? Yeah. Like your own physical metronome. We could dig into all that stuff all day, but I'm I'm going to save some of it for uh, for, <laughs> for this course that I want to do. <laughs> Last question, and I'm asking this knowing we talked about some of this already. Yeah. Question from Kieran Giles. What method would you teach a guitarist to approach programming drum beats that create and release tension in an interesting way throughout the song? You know, like verse into pre-chorus, pre-chorus into chorus. Thank you, Matt, for coming on. This podcast has me pumped. Thank you for having me, guys. I would honestly say something that we've already said, and really just going back to, to Brown, your point of like, Try to program parts of songs by bands with drummers that do cool shit that you like in those push and pull tension building moments of those songs. The more that you develop an understanding of tendency from section to section like that, the more you'll be able to then figure out what things work and what things don't. And oftentimes it's just a matter of setting your intention to pay attention to that, right? Like, you know, by listening to music with a focus is, is very important. You can listen to the same song 10 different times and each time focus on something different about that song that will teach you something else. Um, and I would say if, if that is what you're trying to get better at, listen to 10 songs that have that kind of tension that you like, figure out what is happening between the drums and the, and the melodies, and then go program those things to teach yourself, you know, what is actually happening between the, the parts that you hear. Learn it. I mean, it's interesting to me that really uh, a lot of this just comes down to figure out what you like, incorporate it, practice. Yeah. You're never always going to be original, right? Like, and that's fine because I mean, I can't tell you how many fucking parts I've stolen from other drummers that I think are sick. Like when I think of the song, our song Loon, and like the like the hit before the last part, it is literally the Abe Cunningham "My Own Summer Fill." Do got that's all it is. Now, am I going to draw that connection when listening to it as a fan? Maybe you will, but who gives a fuck? Like it sounds good. Use it. You know, like you're never gonna. You're never again. You're never always going to be original. Um, so you know remember the parts that you like and remember that like imitation is the, the finest form of flattery. And I got to tell you, man, Abe Cunningham <laughs> with that part, you know, I fell in love. And I mean, talk about another drummer who is just so fucking good at playing the song and like strictly based off feel yep. deciding 
what parts to play and pretty much nailing it every time in every song. I kind of think that thing is just his talent. Like that is his talent, but that can be developed by really paying attention to what feels good in terms of space in a song. When I think about Abe, I think about like the use of space and how he's a master of, of doing that, of placing the perfect amount of nothingness in between his hits. And it just, ah, it's crazy. It feels so good. I actually can't imagine Deftones with another drummer. It's, uh, I've always tried to thought about that. I think it's just, I think he makes those songs. Agreed. Yeah, he's got a certain thing to him, doesn't he? Totally. I mean, God forbid if there was ever like a, a tour that he couldn't do, I would I would certainly be the first to raise my hand and try to fill in because <laughs> it would be so fun to like be able to play those songs and try to tap into the Abe style. But you're right. No one could really do it. And it's it's funny, man. It's the same thing as Lars. Yes. Who the fuck would replace Lars? No one. No one plays like him. No one. It's not doable. Right. That's and like that's that is so many people dog that guy out. And I I I can't stand when they do because it's like easy target. Right. It's like a lazy target. <laughs> you go try to play in Metallica. Good luck. Like, dude, I couldn't, I don't, there's no way I could do that gig. There's no way I could do that gig ever. You don't think $80 million could uh, convince you? <laughs> sure, I'd try. But like, oh, dude, of course, of course I would try if given the opportunity. But do I think I could really do it justice? It would sound weird. It, w- yeah. it, would, it wouldn't sound right. You know, that that is... He is, he is unique. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I, like, I love it. And let's be honest, if you go back to 89 in Seattle, it's just obscenely good. He was on oh, it. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, Matt... <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on. It's a pleasure, as always, talking to you. Likewise, man. Thank you. John, it's really good to see you too. Catch up, man. It's good to see you too. And funnily enough, I think that Mike was hearing us talk because during that podcast, he decided to give me a video call. (laughs) And he never calls me. So it's... (laughs) Tell him I said, uh, what's up, if if you talked to him before me. Oh, yeah. I'm going to call him straight after this, so... I guaranteed I will, but great chatting to you, Matt, and hopefully we do it again very, very soon. Likewise, yeah. I feel like a broken record saying this, but uh, every single time we talk to any of the periphery guys, it's always a pleasure, and you can just understand why they do so well. They're just completely tuned. Yeah. I think that's probably the best way to say it, isn't it? Tuned. <laughs> as people and as musicians. Yeah, because that's what it takes. You ha- it's not something that just happens, you know, like... Pretty much every single one of them, you know, Jake, Misha, Mark, and Matt have all said that they had to work out how to work with each other. Yeah, it's it's interesting hearing that from all of them independently. <laughs> it's not just one person's weird fantasy that they work on this stuff. Like, they all have said the same thing. And it's probably all from really small dumb shit that's built up over time, such as the shower. <laughs> that small shit isn't dumb when it can cost you a really important relationship. It's very, very true. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of amazing. I think, too, what I got from this is that um, he plays, he's used to playing with guitar players who really do have their shit together rhythmically. Yeah, pretty much everyone he mentioned actually has their shit together rhythmically. Yeah, it's uh, like you don't get a drummer like that in a band with a bunch of people who can't do that. I mean, it seems obvious, but it's just one of those stories of kind of you are the company you keep or it's almost like like 
discovers like. I couldn't imagine someone like that playing with people who didn't have their shit together rhythmically. But the reason I'm saying this is for people listening, um, you know, if you want to have a band and your goal is to one day have a drummer like Matt or any of the drummers who we were talking about, like Anup or Mike Malin or um, Alex Runiger, any of these guys, anybody of that level, well, what do they all have in common with the people that they play with? What do the guitar players they play with all have in common? Well, they're badass and they're great at rhythm. I can't think of one exception. No, I can't either. I mean, I'm just trying to go through all of the different drummers' bands <laughs> in my mind while I was trying to answer that question. I mean, like, Anoop's got a great history of guitar players that he's played yep. with. Everyone from Sky Harbor, he's obviously played with Monuments and don't want to, you know, <laughs> bark up my own tree saying I'm a great rhythm player, but <laughs> you're all right. It's my forte. And then uh, Alex obviously has played with Good Tiger, again, rhythmically great. He now plays with Whitechapel. Uh, he's played with the Faceless, who definitely, you know, were incredible players. Um, so basically, yeah, they've surrounded themselves with players that are at least of equal quality to them, just on a different instrument. Yeah, exactly. So if you're looking to attract a drummer like that, you need to be on that level. Well, one of the ways that you can get on that level is uh, riffhard.com. Yep. I will teach you to be a rhythm machine. Yeah, so do it. Get better. We'll see you next week, Brian. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.